0: Amen. Good morning. I'm Pastor Chris. I'm the uh, administrative assistant to Pastor Steve here at the church. What a privilege it is uh, to have this opportunity to come one more Sunday and to speak with you again from God's Word. Again, for those of you who are here in the sanctuary, there are Bibles under your seats or under the seat in front of you. And uh, if you don't have one with you, I encourage you to use those. And you're also encouraged, if you don't have a Bible, to take one of those home with you. Just as a, a footnote, I'm going to be using a couple different translations today. So if you're looking in your uh, uh, New Living Translations, some of the passages I read are from the New American Standard or the NIV, uh, but they're all on the screen, so you can so you can follow them as well. I once heard someone say that the Bible, uh, the word Bible, stands for basic instructions before leaving Earth. I love that thought of what the Bible is. You know, the Bible can be viewed from a lot of different perspectives. It's called the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of the Lord, the testimony of God, uh, the law, the good book, and, and many, many other names. And as you know, it's not a book in the traditional sense of a book, but rather it's a compilation of 66 letters and books and sacred writings uh, by 40 different authors over more than 1,500 years. And even though we think about it as a, as a book about faith and religion, which of course it is, it also talks about history, anthropology, geography, geology, and cosmology, to name just a couple of things. But in my experience, I have found that more than anything else, the Bible is a book about relationships. It talks about three distinct relationships, God's relationship with us, our relationship with him, and our relationship with one another. And that to me is what makes this book so important. I've known people in the past whose uh, bookshelves are literally stuffed full of self-help books. Uh, Some of them so-called Christian self-help books. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little known secret. By definition, a Christian is someone who has discovered that they cannot help themselves. Amen? Christian self-help is an oxymoron. A true Christian is a person who understands that they're a lost sinner. They have accepted God's gift of salvation, leaned in on his grace, and have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where this book comes in. See, if you don't have a proper relationship with God, if your relationship with him is broken, every other relationship you have is going to be broken in some way as well. And this book is all about repairing relationships. It's about putting relationships in their proper perspectives. Let me pray. Father, we once again this morning turn our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you open our eyes to see what we are doing, uh, what you are doing. Uh, Lord, we open our ears to hear what you would speak And Father, open our hearts that we might believe. And Lord, we pray you give us the courage to live as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I talked about how Jesus is the exact image of God. And when we have the one living in us, we look like Jesus. We have the attributes and the characteristics of the Savior. And we are no longer slaves to sin that we once were, but that we are saints saved by grace through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? That is is good news. Well, we're going to pick up where I left off there, and we're going to talk about the the word, but we're going to pick up where I left off there um, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 18 and, and following. Let me read it for you. And he is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you have received when you heard the good news. Verse 21 says, you were alienated from God because of your evil thoughts and actions. That means that our relationship with God was broken because of sin. Sin is always the culprit of strained and broken relationships, whether they're here on earth or in heaven itself. Isaiah 59, verse 2 says, It's your sin that have cut, your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Because sin is a breakdown of relationship, causes a breakdown in relationships. I want to take a few minutes and talk to you about what sin is. And again, there are a lot of definitions for the word Sin, especially in the church where we try to over-explain everything. But I want to look at sin from a biblical perspective. And I think the, the Apostle John gives what I uh, believe is the best description of sin to be found anywhere in the Bible, or anywhere for that matter. John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm convinced that all sin is a result of one of those three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and a pride of life. In fact, in all my years as a pastor... I have never been able to come up with a single sin that did not boil down to one of these three. And John actually says in that chapter, or in that verse, for all that is in the world, these three. Let me show you something. The breakdown of our relationship with God started in the Garden of Eden, right? Right? where the serpent, who was more crafty than any other beast of the field which God the Lord had made, said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said, to the woman, you surely will not die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When a woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. First thing that we need to recognize is that the serpent tempted the woman by challenging her understanding of what God had actually said. And then he twisted that to fit his own narrative. And I think... That he does the exact same thing to this very day. He questions God's word, or gets us to question God's word. Did God really say? How many of you have heard that, friends? Say that to you. Well, did the Bible really say that? You fill in the blank. He uses the same tactics today because they still work. He hasn't changed. Look at verse 6. What do you see? When a woman saw that the tree was good for food. Mm Mmm, that's good. Man, that tastes so good. That's going to make me big and strong and healthy. That's called lust of the flesh. Oh, man, that's good food. And then she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. It's so pretty. It's so beautiful. Look how pretty that is. It has to be edible. It looks so good. That's lust of the eyes. And it was desirable to make one wise. Pride of life, I'll be like God. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own decisions. Anyone ever hear that one? God can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. See, the relationship between God and man was broken by sin... And as a result, we have been at odds with him ever since. And it was while we were in that broken state that God made a way for us to have a restored relationship with him. And he has been making a way for our restored relationship with him all along. And you know the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through the Father. Jesus is God's restoration plan. Amen? Amen? Jesus is God's only restoration plan. Jesus is the means of reconciliation. He is the reconciler, the divine reconciler. I want you to see one more thing from that passage that I just read. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves, loin coverings. Adam and Eve actually tried to solve the sin problem themselves. They were the original self-help generation. I can fix this. Just sew a couple leaves together and it's all good. But that wouldn't solve the problem. It was God whom they sinned against. And God did the hard work God is the one who made the garments out of skin and covered the sins of Adam and Eve and set Jesus on the course to restore us to a proper relationship. The truth is, we can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. And we couldn't reconcile ourselves to God either. Everything necessary for our redemption. For our reconciliation was accomplished in Jesus Christ. God has been reaching out to you, demonstrating his love for you, even giving his son to die on a cross for you because he never stopped loving you. Jay Vernon McGee is one of my all-time favorite radio preachers, and I really wish that I could... Uh, imitate his the way he talks because i just love that southern draw that he has and that the way he talks but but i can't so i won't embarrass myself by trying he says this though a great many people have the idea that man must do something to win god over my friend god is trying to win you over the shoe is on the other foot God is reconciled. He's asking men to be reconciled to him. We must realize that we sinned and Christ died for our sins. Simple as that. End his quote. You see, the things that caused the breakdown of the relationship in the first place have been been dealt with by Jesus Christ. And as a result, we can have a right relationship with God his death on a cross paid the full penalty for the sin of each and every believer and as a result our relationship with God is restored and the repentant believer is reconciled and forgiven forever in Colossians 1 verse 23 Paul lists four things that every Christian must do to live in Christ let me share them with you. And this translation actually comes from the New American Standard. He says, but you must continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out to you in the gospel. Continue in faith. The Billy Graham Christian Life and Witness course uses an acrostic that I thought was just perfect for this message. It says that faith stands for forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. That about sums it up, doesn't it? Because faith is about putting all your eggs in one basket. Faith is not only trusting Jesus in the big things, it's trusting Jesus in everything. Faith is about putting everything in the hands of Jesus. Second, Paul said that we are to be established. Established is to know what you believe and why you believe it. Contrary to what the world tells you, our faith is not blind. God has given us everything we need to believe in him with our eyes wide open. In Romans, Paul wrote this. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, uh, seen, being understood through what has been made. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In other words, God is not only found here in this book or here in this room, but his handiwork is all around us. For anyone who wants to see, to see. Paul said we must remain firm. Firm means that we will not abandon our morals or our convictions when they become uncomfortable, unprofitable, or unpopular. That's a statement for today's world, is it not? Paul said in Galatians, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then... And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We must never let sin rule in our lives again just because it's popular. We have to live a life worthy of the Lord and that means standing firm no matter how hard the winds of ridicule and temptation blow in our lives. Finally, in that passage, Paul says, don't lose hope. Is there anything more important, more beautiful than hope? Christ alone is the source of true hope. It's not found in a self-help book sitting on your shelf or in the words of a great story or in idioms that tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get your life together. Jesus Christ is the hope that's revealed in the gospel message. Peter said, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every week, including this morning, every week, someone stands here on this platform and reminds you to go show people Jesus. we do that, Because before any of us came to know Christ, we were lost. Just going through life by accident. No direction, no plan, and no real hope. For me, one day, at a summer Christian camp right here in Pennsylvania... An African-American man named Leonard, who was my camp counselor, shared the gospel with me. The first time I'd ever heard it at 13 years old. I got baptized, went back to Apollo, found a church, and went through the motions. But it was when I began to read God's word for myself that it all came together. And I understood the hope that God had given me. When I read about the love of Jesus, how he died to pay the penalty for my sin, and how because of him, I could have a new and eternal relationship with my heavenly father, it gave me hope that if I could have a right relationship with my heavenly father, maybe, just maybe, my earthly relationships with other people might be made right as well. And I'm fully convinced that it's only after our heavenly relationships are restored that our earthly relationships can be right also. You know, growing up, I barely knew my dad. I, I saw him a couple of dozen times between the time I was four years old and 34 years old. And then one day, my brothers and my dad showed up on my house in the middle of the woods, way up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They just showed up. My father and I began to talk. And over the next several years, we really got to know one another, and our relationship was restored. And I'll never forget the last thing my father said to me As I was leaving his bedside where he lay dying, I kissed him goodbye for what we both knew was going to be the last time. And I turned and I started to walk away, and he called out to me, and I turned to look and he said, I'll see you on the other side, son. Those are good words. But it was only because my relationship with my Heavenly Father had been restored that I could set aside all the pain and all the hurt in my earthly relationships and restore those relationships to where they needed to be. Because he had forgiven me, I learned to forgive others. Amen? Because when he forgave me, I learned to forgive others. When I realized that Jesus could love me after everything I had done, I thought, how could I possibly hold back forgiveness from someone else? I don't deserve grace. I don't deserve God's love. I don't deserve his forgiveness, but he gave it all to me anyway, freely, and he didn't hold anything back. Amen? why I can stand here before you today and I can tell you the importance of showing people Jesus I have been where they are and I know the power of Jesus how the power of Jesus can reconcile and restore a broken life I know the power of God's word and how it can change a person's life because I and am one of his miracles. Amen. I am one of his miracles. Point to yourself. I am one of his miracles. Can I get an amen? I am one of his miracles. Say it with me. I am one of his miracles. Look at the person next to you. You are one of his miracles. You are one of his miracles. I am a miracle saved by the grace of God. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Amen. There are thousands, maybe millions more people just like me waiting for someone to come and show them Jesus. I'll leave you with this question. Are you the one? And if not, why? Father, thank you. Thank you once again for being here with us today. Thank you for stirring the Holy Spirit in us to hear and to believe. To understand. To know you. To be known by you. And to make you known to others. And now, Father, as we go from here and we think about what was said and what we have seen and heard, what we have tasted, as the Apostle said, let us take that home with us. And help us to spread that love throughout our home and in the places we work, in the places we shop, and wherever we go. Lord, let us show people Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. There are Bibles under some of the seats uh, near you or under you. Uh, if you don't have one with you, you are welcome to use them and you are encouraged uh, to take them home with you if you, if you need. I once heard someone say that the word bible uh, stood for basic instructions before leaving earth what a great way to think of that of that book the bible can be viewed in a lot of different uh, perspectives it's called the word of god the scriptures the holy scriptures the word of the lord the law the testimony of god the good book and in several others but as you may know it's not a book in the traditional sense, but rather it's a compilation of 66 books, letters, and sacred writings uh, by uh, 40 different authors, written over more than 1,500 years. The Bible covers a lot of different topics. And even though we think of it as a book about faith and religion, which of course it is, it also talks about history, anthropology, geography, geology, and cosmology, to name just a few. But in my experience, I have found that, more than anything else, this is a book about relationships. It's a book about three distinct relationships. It talks about God's relationship with humankind, with us. It talks about our relationship with God, and it talks about our relationship with one another. And to me, that's what makes this book so important. I've known people in the past whose bookshelves were literally filled with self-help books, many of them so-called Christian self-help books. Well, I'm gonna let you in on a little-known secret. By definition, a Christian is someone who's discovered that they cannot help themselves. Christian self-help is an oxymoron. A true Christian, is a person who understands that they're lost sinners and have accepted God's gift of salvation, have leaned in on his grace and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where this book comes in. If you don't have a proper relationship with God, if your relationship with him is broken, then chances are every other relationship you have will be broken as well. This book... Is all about repairing those relationships. Let me pray. Father, again, we turn our hearts to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that you open our eyes to see what you are doing. You open our ears to hear what you would speak. And open our hearts that we might believe. Give us courage, Lord, to live as your children. In Jesus' name, amen. last week I talked about how Jesus is the exact image of God and when we have the one living in us we look like Jesus we have all the attributes and the characteristics of the savior and we're no longer that slave to sin that we once were but you are a saint saved by grace through the blood of the lamb amen that's really good news Well, we're gonna pick up where we left off last week in Colossians 1, starting in verse 18. And I'll tell you that some of the verses that I'm going to use today later on uh, are from different translations than just the uh, New Living Translation. Some are from the New American Standard and the NIV as well. So let me read for you. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you have have received when you heard the good news. Amen. Verse 21 says that we were alienated from God because of our evil thoughts and actions. That means that our relationship with God was broken because of sin. It's been my experience, and I believe that sin is always the culprit of strained and broken relationships, whether here on earth or in heaven itself. Isaiah 59.2 says... It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Because sin is the cause of breakdown of relationships, I want to take a few minutes and talk about what sin is. Now, again, there are a lot of different definitions for sin, especially in the church where we try to over-explain everything. But I want to look at sin from a biblical perspective this morning. I believe that the Apostle John has what is the best description and, and actually one of the most beautiful descriptions of what sin actually is anywhere. In 1 John 2, 1 and uh, 15 and 16, he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh... And the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. I'm convinced that all sin is a result of one of those three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and a pride of life. In fact, in all my years as a pastor, I've never been able to come up with a single sin that didn't boil down to one of those three things. And John actually says, for all that is in the world, when he's speaking of those sins. So let me show you something here. Uh, We all know that the breakdown of the relationship between God and man started in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent, who was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, said to the woman... Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from the tree, any tree of the garden. And a woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in a day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. When a woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. First, we should recognize that the serpent tempted the woman by challenging her understanding of what God had actually said. And then twisted it to fit his narrative. And I believe he does the exact same thing to this very day. He gets us to question God's Word and asks, did God really say, how many of you have heard that from your friends and and people, did God really say that you can't do this or shouldn't do that? Did God really say, is that what God said? You fill in the blank. And he uses the same tactics today on us because they still work after all this time. Look at verse six in the text that we have. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. Oh, it's so good. It tastes so good. It's so yummy. Or that's going to make me bigger and stronger and healthier. That's going to, oh, that's good. Lust of the flesh. And it was the light to the eyes. It was so pretty. It's so beautiful. How can I? I mean, it just looks so good. And that it was desirable to make one wise. Pride of life. I will be like God. I'll make my own decisions, thank you very much. I don't need you to tell me what to do. You see, the relationship between God and man was broken by sin. And and as a result, we have been at odds with him ever since. And it was while we were in that broken state that God made a way for us to have a restored relationship with him. And he's been making a way for our restored relationship with him all along. And you know the way. Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus is God's restoration plan. Jesus is God's only restoration plan. Jesus is the means of reconciliation and he is the divine reconciler. He brings us together. Now I want you to see one more thing from Genesis chapter three. The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Adam and Eve actually tried to solve their sin problem themselves. They were the original self-help generation, but that wouldn't solve their problem. It was God who they had sinned against, and God who did the hard work, and it was God who made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and covered their sin. You see, the truth is that we cannot help ourselves. We can't save ourselves, we can't redeem ourselves, and we couldn't reconcile ourselves to God either. Everything necessary for redemption and for reconciliation was accomplished in Jesus Christ. God has been reaching out to you, demonstrating his love for you, even giving his son to die on a cross for you because he never stopped loving you. J. Vernon McGee, one of my favorite all-time radio preachers, and he talks with this real deep, real high southern draw, and I wish I could imitate it for him, but I can't, so I won't embarrass myself. But J. Vernon McGee says this, he said, a great many people have the idea that they must do something to win God over. My friend, God is trying to win you over. The shoe is on the other foot. God is reconciled. He's asking for men to be reconciled with him. We must realize that we sin and Christ died for our sins. As simple as that. You see, the things that caused the breakdown of the relationship in the first place have been dealt with by the death of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we can have a right relationship with God. His death on the cross paid the full penalty for our sin, each and every believer. And as a result, our relationship with God is restored and a repentant believer is reconciled and forgiven forever. In Colossians 1, in verse 23, Paul lists four things that we must do to live in Christ, And this is from the New American Standard translation, this verse 23. But he says, but you must continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. He says we must continue in faith. Billy Graham's Christian Life and Witness course used the acrostic that I thought was perfect for the message, he says it, it says that faith stands for forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. That about sums it up, doesn't it? Faith is putting all of your eggs in one basket. Faith is not only trusting Jesus in the big things, it's trusting Jesus in everything. Paul says, second, that we are to be established. Established is to know what you believe and why you believe it. Contrary to what the world tells you, our faith is not blind. God has given us everything that we need to believe in him with our eyes wide open. In Romans, Paul wrote, They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For since the creation of the world his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through the the things which he has made. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. In other words, God isn't only found here in this book or in this room, but his handiwork is available for anyone to see who would just take the time to look. Look. It's everywhere you look. Paul said we must remain firm. Firm means that we will not abandon our, moral con- our morals or our convictions when they become uncomfortable, unprofitable, uh, or unpopular. And that's a big statement for today, isn't it? Paul said in Galatians, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, we must never allow sin to rule in our lives again. We have to live a life worthy of the Lord. And that means standing firm, no matter how hard the winds of ridicule and temptation blow. Finally, he says, don't lose hope. Is there anything more important and more beautiful than hope? See, Christ alone is a source of true hope. He's not found in a self-help book or in the words of a great story or an idiom that admonishes you to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get your life together. Jesus is the hope that is revealed in the gospel message. uh, uh, Peter wrote, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Every week, and it happened again already this week, Every week someone stands here on this platform and reminds you to show people Jesus. We do that because before any of us came to know Christ we were lost. Just going through life by accident. No real direction, no plan and no real hope. For me at least when I was 13 years old at a Christian summer camp here in Pennsylvania an African American man by the name of Leonard who was my camp counselor shared the gospel and it gave me hope we went down to the river and he baptized me that day and I went home and I began to attend a church but I was still not sure, I was still lost I wasn't sure what was going on and then I began to read God's Word for myself. And that's when it all came together. And He began to give me hope. When I read about the love of Jesus Christ, when I read how He died to pay the penalties for my sins, and how because of Him, I could have a new and eternal relationship with my Father with my Heavenly Father. It gave me hope that if I could have a right relationship with my Heavenly Father, maybe I could have a right relationship with other people in my life as well. I am completely convinced that it's only after our heavenly relationships are restored that our earthly relationships can be right as well. When I was growing up, I barely knew my dad. I saw him maybe a couple of dozen times from the time I was four years old until I was 34. Then one day my brothers and my dad uh, showed up at my house way back in the middle of the woods in the upper peninsula of Michigan. My father and I began to talk. And over the next several years, we got to know one another and our relationship was restored and I'll never forget the last thing that my father said to me as I was leaving his bedside where he lay dying I kissed him goodbye for what we both knew would be the last time and I started toward the door and my father called out to me and I turned and looked and he said I'll see you on the other side son see we had a restored relationship We had a new relationship because we had a relationship with God. We had a relationship with the Father. Because Jesus had restored my relationship with my Heavenly Father, I was able to let go of the pain and hurt in my earthly relationships. Because He had forgiven me, I understood and I learned to forgive others. When I realized that Jesus could love me after everything I had done, I asked myself, how could I possibly hold back that same love and forgiveness from someone else? See, I didn't deserve grace, amen? I don't deserve God's love. I don't don't deserve God's forgiveness. But he gave it all to me, freely, and he didn't hold anything back. He gave it all. And that's why I can stand here today and tell you the importance of showing people Jesus, because I have been where they are. I know the power Jesus has and can reconcile my life and restore a broken life. I know how the power of God's word can change a person's life because I am one of his miracles." Amen? I'm one of his miracles. I am one of his miracles. Point to yourself. Say it with me. I am one of his miracles. Come on. I'm one of his miracles. I'm one of his miracles. Point to the person next to you. You are one of his miracles. You are one of his miracles. You are one of his miracles. We're a miracle. People ask me all the time, does God still perform miracles? Yes, He does, because I am one of His miracles. And there are thousands, maybe millions of more people out there just like me waiting for someone to come and show them Jesus. And so I'll end today with just a question for you Will you be that one? And if not, why not? Let me pray. Father, thank you once again for being here with us today. Thank you for stirring the Holy Spirit in us to hear and to believe. And now, Lord, as we go out from here and we think about what was said here, what we have seen and heard, what we have tasted, let us take that home with us and help us to spread that love throughout our home and in the places where we work in the places where we shop and wherever we go. Let us show people Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.